Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Well, here we are. Some days are good and some days are great. And today is a great day. It's not every morning that you get up and think, I'm going to get to check something off my bucket list. Well, for those of you that are expecting the dulcet tones of Nico Johnson this morning, boy, have you, are you in for a surprise. This is Scott Sullivan, and I am your temporary host of Suncast. Oh my gosh, what a day. First of all, we're going to congratulate Nico Johnson for his 100th episode, and we are about to turn the mic around and we are going to turn the tables on Nico. So thank you, Nico, for being my guest on Suncast, the 100th episode. Well, you know, Scott, it's always been a dream of mine to be on Suncast. And uh, I appreciate you asking me to be here for episode 100. Again, this is one of my bucket list items as well, to tell the truth, to actually get Suncast to episode 100. So thank you for for being here. Well, no, it's an honor for me to be here. As most of uh, both of our listeners know, you have a big following on Suncast and I have a uh, less than big following growing. on uh, growing following on Mind Your Own Business. If you are listening to this on the inspirednewsradio.com channel right now, you are experiencing something that's a little off of our normal format, but we are way off the Suncast format. <laughs> We're off the reservation, but today I get to do what all of you have wanted to know, all of the questions, everything that we wanted to know about Nico Johnson, and we're bringing it to you on Suncast 100. So let's get started. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle. A battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Well, the tables are turned, and my guest today on Suncast is Nico Johnson, the man behind the microphone, the man who has spent hundreds of hours interviewing some of the greatest solar minds, of which I am a very, very fortunate to be one. But today, we are going to dig in, Nico, and ask you all kinds of things. So we're going to start with the origin story. As most of us know that are longtime listeners of Suncast, we want to know who the man is. Mm. So let's start somewhere back in the beginning, tell us a little bit back when you were just a, a wee lad <laughs> and tell us a little bit about how you got your feet on the path to the renewable energy business. I always wonder when I ask this question of my guests just how far back they're going to go. And my intention is to have some insight into whether entrepreneurship in particular and, and renewable energy specific to that is something that they stumbled into or very intentionally opened a door to. I come from a very entrepreneurial family, although I'm not one of those, you know, sold packs of gum at school type of entrepreneurs. To be honest, I never really fancied myself an entrepreneur growing up. My dad ran a construction business. I like to say, and I said a bit earlier today to a friend, I come from the original subsidy-supported business of agriculture. My grandfather and his father before him ran a, a moderately successful family farming business in South Carolina. So I grew up understanding that you kill what you eat, and uh, you eat what you kill. And living off of the land and living from our natural resources has always been something that, from a very young age, has been instilled into the fabric of my family and, and, and into who I am. I grew up in a really, really small town, small enough that we would joke that when we had an away football game, whoever the last one out of town on the way to the game would turn off the lights. <laughs> that small town mentality was something that I longed to break free from and longed to travel the world. In 2001, as a senior in college, I decided to go to Spain and study abroad. And that was the first time I got my passport. And for those of you who know a bit about my career, the notion that I was 21 years old before I started traveling may surprise you. 
Uh, it was me. I <laughs> definitely am surprised. I've put, I mean, I've put hundreds of thousands of miles of butt in seat of airplane since then and spent a lot of time in Latin America and a little bit of time in Europe. But yeah, I got my travel bug right there in 2001. Traveled to study in Madrid, in España, and I had studied Spanish in college. Everything comes back to a girl, right? But I'd studied Spanish in college because a girl that I had a crush on had gone to study abroad and she came back from her studies in Monaco, and I was smitten by the idea. I mean, she was even more attractive at that point because she had studied somewhere not South Carolina. And I was smitten with this idea that it was possible to get school credits for goofing off and surfing in Costa Rica, which is what I had a goal of doing, until I, I came back and the professor said, you know, um, or the, not the, the study abroad team said, you know, you got to have an advanced level of Spanish, and it looks like you tested out of Spanish, congratulations, as a freshman, and decided that you didn't want to take it any further. So since you haven't taken any Spanish for the last two years, you're going to need to start at the bottom and you're going to need to take these accelerated courses. And that means you're going to need to study, you know, basically 12 hours of Spanish in the next two semesters to be able to get to the level that you can go. And the only program we have is for a year in Costa Rica. So you've got to do that plus a summer term. And uh, I said, well, what else do I have an option for? And they said, well, there's this program in Spain where you can just go in at an intermediate level and it's a semester. And, you know, by the time you're a senior in college, you could probably be ready. So I opted for that. I went my fourth year, second semester where I would have graduated. I'm going to tell a little bit more backstory because those who don't know, I'm married and and this plays into all of that and, and some of the decisions that I made. So I decided to go study in Spain And I went, instead of graduating, I went to Spain. And as I was applying for graduation, they said, no, you don't understand. You're abroad. You can't actually graduate until you've, you you can't finish school as an abroad term. You have to come back and finish a term at home. And so I'm thankful to God and to that study abroad person who, who led me astray, basically, by thinking I could graduate while still studying abroad. Because the semester I came home and basically took a cakewalk through school, I met my wife. She was a incoming freshman. I was an outgoing senior. We call them fifth year seniors. Typically it's because you've done something wrong. In my case, it was that I decided to go study abroad. Did something right. Yeah. And it changed my life forever. It was in that study abroad that I realized just how uh, myopic and ethnocentric I had uh, been raised and how there was a whole wide world out there that, uh, that I had no idea existed. Um, didn't, it was when I, then that I started realizing how racist I had been raised truly racist, like actually, truly racist. And I didn't realize that that part of me was just so, still buried in there. What an awakening. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It took years of self-work to overcome or to create something better in me than that. Well, let's unpack a couple of those things that you mentioned. First of all, what school did you go to? Where did you go to college? I went to the University of South Carolina. Excellent. And then, and then when I was in, in Madrid, I went to a Boston university called Suffolk. Suffolk is known for their uh, law school, but they also have a, a small gathering of international students in, in Madrid. And what were you studying? I studied business. My friend Jeff would, uh, would laugh had he heard me say that because I started as an engineer. So we'll, we'll go there. I came in on a full engineering scholarship in the USC Honors School, USC University of South Carolina. I basically failed out of engineering school my freshman year. And as many engineering dropouts or failouts, I've moved over to the business school. My buddy liked to say that business school is for people who can't hack it in engineering school. Um, but, <laughs> oh, that's, but I feel really bad now. <laughs> but but, but I, I, remind him, I remind him that if it wasn't for business school, engineers would be stuck in a cubicle. And of course, he went back and got his MBA afterwards. So he appreciates now the rigor of business and the total lack of preparedness for actually accelerating his career and moving up in management that the engineering school prepared him for. You know, one of the things I have in common with all of my guests or many of my guests is music. And I moved over to the business school because I wanted to be in the music industry. And I realized that I didn't want to be stuck drawing arc vectors and working in CAD. And that just didn't fulfill me. I needed to interact with human beings, not with machines. And I identified that if I go to the business school, you know, MC Hammer, he taught me a lesson. I was always meant to be in the music industry from a very young age. And MC Hammer taught me a lesson because shortly after his rise, meteoric rise in R&B music and hip hop in the, in the 90s, he went bankrupt and he blamed it on his manager, which I don't appreciate the shirking responsibility implied there, but he blamed it on his manager because he had left his business affairs to a third party and his manager had basically stolen $30 million. You know, it was that moment that I said, God, that's foolish. When I make it in the music industry, I'm going to know how business works. I want to understand how the business side of music works. 
going to University of South Carolina, Hootie and the Blowfish, Darius Rucker uh, and, and his crew started out at the University of South Carolina. That's where they went to school and graduated. That's where they got their start in Columbia, South Carolina. So I kind of looked up to them as sort of music mentors. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this engineering thing because that's what I got in school for. But the reality is I really want to be in music. I want to be on the stage. I wanted to be in the limelight. I wanted to be a rock and roll star. I had always been in, in choir and had dabbled with bands in high school, but I was going to take my education seriously so that I wouldn't lose 30 million when I made it. That's the real reason why I left the engineering school and probably the metaphysical reason why I fell out of the engineering school, to be truthful. I was involved in a show choir. Turns out it was the same show choir that Darius Rucker was involved in. So we traveled around. We did performances all over the U.S., actually all over the world. True to form, as a freshman who joins a show choir, I spent a lot of time in extracurricular activities. You didn't let your uh, extracurricular activities get in the way of your academia. I would say I, uh, my extracurricular activities completely swamped my academia. <laughs> well, that's, that's not always a bad thing. So let's unpack a little bit more, too. You glossed right over your childhood in, in South Carolina in this small town. So Very are, there, are there siblings? I mean, is it, did you come from a traditional yeah. uh, mom and dad family I, with three or four brothers and sisters? What, how, what was your family like? Yeah, so... I come from a very traditional WASP family, right? If you're not familiar with that term, white, white, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I didn't know that term until college when I was confronted with it by someone calling me one. But and you say, I'm not an erected. That's right. Uh, I'm, I'm a bumblebee, I'll have you know. Uh, I grew up in a farming family. Uh, my mom said my granddad ran a, a tobacco farm and my uncles were tobacco farmers. I had the fortune of being raised in a very small town with one sibling, basically Irish twins. She is um, still back in South Carolina. My parents, my mom is a nurse. She became the, the breadwinner of the family through putting herself through nursing school while my dad built a construction business. And it was a residential home building business. So I grew up, you know, my first job was cleaning the job sites for him and carrying boards and pulling nails out of wood. And, Excellent. And well, that's a swinging. great work ethic, though. That's, that taught you a work ethic. So yeah, the swinging. reason I, I just wanted to go back there, because I wanted to find out if it was a big traditional family. Or, yeah. So you have one sibling. And are you still close to your family? Yeah, I'm close because we're a relatively, we're a nucleic family. You know, we value time with each other. I was raised with a, a religious, I would say doctrine. I was raised, you know, in, in Southern Baptist, South Carolina, right? And my, my family, from the, buckle, a very, the buckle of the Bible. From belt. a very, from a very <laughs> early age, I was going to church. I was, you know, when I said I was born, uh, I've said to you, like, I was born with a microphone in my hand. Like I was literally singing from the stage of my church at age three, right? And I could sing the song, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, like word for word when I was two. Wow. So, yeah. And I was none too shy about jumping up on stage and singing anything that they wanted me to sing. So for those of you who it might surprise you that, you know, it comes easy for me to stand up in front of a crowd, <laughs> which I'm sure there's no one, uh, <laughs> that, that, that would certainly unlock the mystery for you. Uh, I, I'd like to believe that there are things you can learn about how to handle yourself behind a mic. And truly, I work with people now and, and teach them the presence skills and how to start a podcast and how to do public speaking. But speaking in public and, and singing and, and performing is just one of those things that for me is like fish breathing underwater, right? It's just what I've always done. You and I both share that common gene. So we've not met a crowd that we didn't want to entertain. Yeah. And we've not met a microphone that we didn't like. So that's yeah. fine. The reason I wanted to ask about that is because we're going to be moving now. We are now migrating to that fifth year senior. You've just met your wife and and life is now taking a turn. So you've kind of walking down this path and now you're about to take a left turn. Let's talk a little bit about now how your feet got set on the path of the renewables and mm -hmm. where up until this time you're gonna be in the music business. That's right. And like a lot of stories revolves around a uh, person of the opposite sex. Now you've found your, your soulmate, uh -huh. if you will. And now what happens? For as long as I can remember, I knew I wanted to move to California. When I was a kid, my uncle was a truck driver, and he asked all the grandkids, 17 of us, where do you want your gift from this year? He probably bought it from a truck stop, but I told him I wanted mine from California. I was probably seven or eight. So there's no surprise to anyone, including my then girlfriend, now wife, that when I graduated in 2001, I told the world, California, here I, here I come. At the same time, I knew that I wanted to travel. I had a few goals. By the age of 25, I had, I had five basic goals. I wanted to live in California. I wanted to live abroad. I wanted to study a foreign language and know it fluently. Fourth was to get an MBA. 
I wasn't sure where or how I was going to do that. And the fifth was to start down my career path, start a business, ideally. And it turned out that I could actually, I found that I found out through the Peace Corps program, what's called Masters International, I could move to California, go to grad school, get assigned to Latin America and learn Spanish. So like all four of the top four, of the, so the top four of my five goals were easily accomplished through taking one specific path, which was to go to grad school, the Monterey Institute of International Studies, and pursue a graduate degree while in the track of what they call Masters International for Peace Corps. And I knew I was going to go to Peace Corps as a business extensionist, and I would work with small businesses, and uh, I was going to go to Latin America, because when you've got an MBA or a graduate degree, you can kind of direct your future a little bit more in the Peace Corps, because they sort of, they sort of reallocate resources that are, we'll call it, more highly trained. So we're going to skip over a lot, but part and parcel of who I am is the fact that I spent two and a half years in Guatemala. Before I went to California, I was very heavily involved in the music industry, predominantly in the Christian music industry, predominantly in promotion, helping bands book shows, find basically partners who they would go on tour with and helping them get introduced to labels and try to find their way through Nashville. I spent a lot of time just before I went to Peace Corps helping a guy in California, John Robertson, who is still a mentor, and he runs a company called Celebration Concerts. It's the largest, uh, they're the largest promoter for Christian concerts in the western region of the United States. They put on this thing called Spirit West Coast, which happens to be in Monterey, where I was going to school. Reached out and said, hey, I'd like to be an intern. That was a fantastic experience for me, but what it taught me was that I wasn't so enamored with the music industry that I wanted to make it my profession. And when I came back from the Peace Corps, having had very hands-on experience with small businesses, helping them figure out their marketing message, helping them figure out their operational uh, efficiencies, helping them figure out what among the many things they could be doing, they, could, they should be focused on. I realized that in the music industry, I had an opportunity to make an impact, but in the business world, I had an opportunity to really change things, to really change how things work. Now, Coming back to grad school to finish, I had one last semester in 2006, and I'd convinced my then-girlfriend, now fiancé, to move back to California with me. We moved to Monterey. I'm finishing out my last semester, and when you know it, I have one class. It's the only class I really care about. It's entrepreneurship with Fred Krop, a guy who is one of my... What was that attacking me? Here we are in the California wilderness. <laughs> Seriously, I think I, just, I think I just got attacked by arachnids. <laughs> We're going to leave that in. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. I don't know what that felt like it had legs. It probably did. Uh, um, so my mentor, Fred Kropp, had this course called entrepreneurship. And at that time, 2006, actually, Monterey Institute was voted eighth in the nation for entrepreneurship, which is one of the reasons why I'd chosen to go there. And he was one of the professors. I always tell people when you're looking at grad schools, there's two things you really should focus on. One, is there a professor or a particular track that they are killing it? They're ahead of the curve. They're really someone that you want to go study under and you want to help push further, like find a program or a professor or a track where they are leading, clearly leading. And Fred Kropp was that uh, for me. And so I was taking his class and we came to a point in the class where we had to choose which of the two projects he had selected we were going to join, right? There's 20 of us, 10 on each project. And you take the semester and you basically break down this business and you help them. It's a traditional like semester business plan type class for entrepreneurship. And you apply the things that you're learning in the class to that business. And he said, Nico, I've got something interesting for you. He said, you've got a choice here that's going to seem at first obvious, but I'm going to challenge your thinking. He said, I've managed to get the Monterey Jazz Festival as one of our businesses. And my eyes lit up. I'm like, wow, this is great. This is a no-brainer, right? I'm music industry, Monterey Jazz Festival. Like, this is a layup. Going to lead that team. Going to really impress these guys. And he goes, I figured you'd say that. But guess what? I've got this other guy, uh, Ed Bless. And Ed has this business in Hollister. And he just got a grant. And he's trying to figure out, like, where does solar fit? And he's got this, like, it's just a clean energy thing. And frankly, like, this is real entrepreneurship. I'd like to persuade you to take on that project. To not bore the listeners, I did say, okay, well, there's only, you only get one shot to take a chance here when I'm faced with it. So like, I'm going to take the road less traveled. And that road less traveled ended up literally to where I am today. I took the, I took the left fork, which was much narrower and windier. Full of thickets. And full of thickets. <laughs> and to put it into context, this was... 2006. Yeah, this is May. <laughs> this is, well, this is March of 2006. For those who aren't familiar with March of 2006 and why that's pivotal in the solar industry writ large, but in the U.S. solar industry, 
the then governor, new governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, had signed into law the Million Solar Roofs Initiative, which became the California Solar Initiative. It was SB1. And SB1 basically said, we're going to put a flag in the sand and we're going to incentivize the hell out of solar power. and We're going to make it ubiquitous in California. And we had just changed from a calculated savings incentive program to a yep. performance based. Yep. So now all of a sudden there were all of these new rules and regulations for for all of our listeners. They know that. I mean, yep. this, the sun, the people in the solar industry right now know how pivotal 2005 and 2006 were to us. Yeah. And I stumbled into this opportunity where after about a month of helping Ed and, and the team, I was asked to be a leader of the team. March of that year, Ed sat me down for coffee in March and said, I know that this is your last semester. I'd like to ask you to take this a bit more seriously. Would you come on as a co-founder and a partner in this business? I said, I'm flattered. Let me get through the semester. I'll take a few phone calls with you and try to figure this out. We finished writing the business plan. I got, I graduated in May, got married in June, took two weeks in, uh, in June and into July in Brazil, <laughs> in, uh, in Rio and uh, in Salvador and just like explored this new part of my life. My wife and I had a bet, basically, uh, the first to get a job wins. We'll pick where we're living based on who gets a job. <laughs> right? We're both 20, you know, she's 25, I was 26. No, she's 24, I was 26. And uh, she got a job at a vineyard in Monterey, and it was paying her, you know, 45000 a year, I think, which was enough for us both to live on. And I convinced Ed to, to pay me a nominal, you know, monthly fee to uh, go to work at this company called Blue Line Power. You know, I did everything under the sun. I was chief bottle washer, you know, I was basically did everything that was, po- that was necessary. I recruited a, a guy who had worked with me in the, in the grad school business plan to come on as the director of marketing, Pete Brumis, and recruited a bunch of other grad school colleagues to come in and just kind of help us tear the business apart and rebuild it. You know, that, build, that business was a decent business. We did that year about two fifty dollars or $300,000 in, in revenue. The next year, we were almost seven figures in revenue. We did the Monterey County Weekly, a bunch of firsts, you know, like the first PPA in Monterey County. We did the first newspaper in the United States to be 100% solar powered, Monterey County Weekly. Brad Zeev is wow. ahead of his time. Uh, this was in 2007. But I'll never forget, you never forget your first project. That's right. My first project was a three kilowatt system on a barn just outside of, of my client's home, you know, just outside of Monterey. For those of you who know Michelle Hyde, Michelle Hyde is at Enphase. He's one of my longest standing friends in the industry. Michelle, I'll never forget him videoing that system that he installed when he was a lineman at Acroelectric. I mean, we're going way back in the time machine here, but Michelle and Mike and so many friends at Acro that I had basically figured out how I could leverage them as a great subcontractor to get my project installed. But Michelle and I go back to that project, and I saw—I just saw Miner Solar, you know. Yeah, we, so did I. I was we, with you. We shook hands, and <laughs> you know, I congratulated him. And we've seen—he, like you and I—we've seen each other just grow in this industry. But everything has its moment, right? And I never forget. The feeling of Jim, oh, I'll, for the sake of the podcast, I won't share his last name, but when Jim gave me that check for the deposit, it was like $20,000 deposit on his yeah, three, for a three kilowatt, three system, kilowatt yeah. residential system. It was the first time I'd held real money in my hand that was like a client paying me. And I was addicted to the feeling that like I had convinced this guy who was convinced he wanted to go solar to go with my company. And that started me down the path of really trying to figure out how we can unlock solar for resi and commercial. At that time, we were just doing resi and commercial. What I should say is that coming out of grad school, Fred Kropp had advised me to go find a job at a big company. And he actually said, I don't know if this blue line thing is going to work out. Uh, if it doesn't, I'd suggest you go find a job at a big company, like reinforce your skills, leverage this MBA. Later down the road, I, I heard the echoing of his voice in my head, and, and that was one of the reasons why I went to Trina. That's the real foundation, uh, Blue Line Power in Monterey in 2006, you know, grabbing the CSI by the tail and watching companies like Akina, I mean, competing against Akina, watching Solar City rise, watching Real Goods gobble up my competition in Santa Cruz and, 
this industry is so full of people who really see the value of what we're doing and who understand that on the arc of our career, we're better friends than enemies. There's, there, I don't have any enemies in this industry. And that's, that's what I was just going to say. I'm so glad you said that because I, too, have followed not only your career. I've, I know who you have known who you were at very early on and, and knew you when you were at Trina and you were you know, managing Latin America and mm -hmm. we were spending time together. And even if we're direct competitors, hmm. even I mean, even if we were both in the exact same space yeah. selling against each other, and it's not just you, it's everyone in this industry, we both know there's a higher purpose and a higher calling for what we're doing. Yeah. And I don't have any enemies. Yeah. I don't have any enemies in this industry. I would hand over, and it's so funny because I, I see this cutthroat, cutthroat world that these you know, high-powered salespeople live in and how they protect their clients and their and their leads and everything else. And I tell people all the time, you can have my address book. Mm. You can have it because yep. at the end of the day, the relationship that I have with that client is still going to be strong. Yeah, that's right. Right? So, right. yes. I, I, have a, I actually have a funny story that goes along with that. I'll never forget. So fast forward, uh, there's a whole gap where I was doing CNI development with a great team at DRI. Um, you know, some of the folks that I'm still deep friends with, you know, Bob Rudd, who went on to be VP of storage at Solar City, just recently departed there. Kyle Kearney, who's VP at uh, Borrego for the Western region. I mean, like I worked with some real heavy hitters. Polly Barranco, she's like now in Australia for S Power. Like she went to London. I mean, I worked with kids that ended up, we were all kids in our 20s, ended up being really solid developers and, uh, and leaders in our industry. And I remember having gone on and moved into to Trina, competing on in Honduras with a guy who I was really good friends with, a guy named Pedro Sanz. Uh, he's at Canadian Solar. And Pedro was living in Panama. I was living in Miami. And we were, I had developed a really deep relationship with, uh, with the LaRoche family down in Honduras. And they were the leaders. They were going to develop 300 megawatts of projects out of, out of a proposed 600. Uh, they had 150 megawatt project on the table. And for a year plus, probably 15 months, I had nurtured this relationship. And, and I walked into Adolfo LaRoche's office in San Pedro Sula. And, and I had uh, an opportunity to sit down with he and his team, Cesar Lagos, who's an amazing engineer down in Honduras. And it was really one of those moments where as a sales guy, just the platter is laid out before you, right? It's 150 megawatts. He said, this deal is yours. Trina's just got to play ball. Like, here are the rules. He, over a course of four hours, laid out exactly how he wanted the transaction to look. And nothing underhanded, nothing dirty. In fact, he was giving a lot. He was asking for a lot, but he was giving a lot in terms of he had already worked out all the terms and conditions. And, like, we just, we sort of fine-tune everything. And I said, look, I get it. Like, you want your price. You guys are going to laugh about this. But he, he, he wanted it at the time, 54 cents. And at Trina, we were offering him 58 cents. And Trina wouldn't budge. And he said, you know, unsolicited, I have this email from Canadian. And I'm like, that's from my friend Pedro. I'd love to see that. And, uh, and he says, well, I won't show you the email out of courtesy to Pedro. But he said, suffice to say that I'm not giving you fake numbers. And I said, I'm sure then it comes with power guard and all the accoutrements that Canadian likes to throw in for free. And he's like, yeah. And, you know, 54 cents is not a made up number. And I just wanted you to know that this is actually an unsolicited email. I haven't even started negotiating with Canadian. And I go back and I tell Trina this. And essentially Trina's answer was, we're not going to bend over. Like, where's the salesmanship in that? And uh, we're not going to we're not going to do the deal. It ultimately ended up is why I left Trina. Uh, I just d didn't have um, couldn't see working for a company that didn't understand, like when a sales guy's taken a deal that far on that that big of a scale um, and, and didn't want to stand up and say, OK, I guess like in this place, in this scenario, like this is what we're going to have to do. But to actually put it back on me and say that somehow I had been deficient in, in being able to bring that deal to fruition because I, was, because I was basically taking the price they were asking for, it seemed really unfair and it diminished the work that I and many others on our team had done that, that ended, you know, that consummated itself in me being able to walk into one of the most powerful Honduran oligarchs office and have him say, this deal is yours. Like, play ball. This deal is yours. So... Where am I going with this? I pick up the phone <laughs> and I get Pedro, my, you know, pseudo enemy, right? Yeah. My competitor, everyone on the, and he like basically has undone this deal for me that I've worked on for 15 months. And I said, Pedro, I've just come back from San Pedro Sula. Just wanted to let you know that you're now an uncontested bidder for this project. And you should feel very bold and confident in your position. That's excellent. And Pedro 
to this day. Like, I mean, we're, we were great friends all, all along, but Pedro got a 150 megawatt contract <laughs> because we stick together in this industry. And, and I, like the, I like Adolfo. I like uh, my customers. But when you see an opportunity and you know that without some sort of, let's call it guidance, your friend is going to be a whipping post now for someone else. I was all too happy to see when my foundation had been eroded that I could firm the foundation up under one of my friends. And that's exactly why this industry is so special. I know. You're listening to this episode because you're tired of doing things the old way and looking for a new approach. And that is precisely why my friends at CPS America, aka Chint Power Systems, have agreed to help make this fresh content possible for you. See, they believe in the power of change and the importance of trying something before others catch on. They are the U.S. market share leader of three-phase string inverters, pioneering that approach since before it was cool. With over two gigawatts shipped in America, Chint's feature-rich, high-performance inverters, and its nimble service team are ahead of the pack, just like you. If you'd like to find out what CPS can do for your CNI and utility business, reach out to me for an intro, nico at mysuncast.com. Or you can reach out to them directly and just let them know you heard it here on Suncast. I want to reinforce a few things. I have known Mr. Johnson for quite a few years and a number of years. I have enjoyed both uh, to be on both sides of that relationship as Pedro has. I have been in a place where I could pass on a lead and I have been in a place when I have taken advantage of that, of that uh, generosity. And mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you for all of the listeners today, you've got to get to know Nico Johnson better. The man has a tremendous work ethic. He is a strong, strong in his faith, understands the value of his family beyond any, just he has three beautiful children and a beautiful wife, and you need to know him and know him for who he is. I am absolutely excited mm-hmm. today to have spent the last you know 45 minutes hearing the backstory and everything that there is, uh, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot more that we could talk about, but I have really, truly enjoyed this. So now what I'd like to do is I'd like to just pivot slightly Mm -hmm. and I'd like to talk a little bit about something that you said to me. I I consider you to not only be a colleague, but a friend. Mm. And I, I value that, that leadership that you have positioned yourself in. I value you as a friend and as a colleague. And when we were sitting somewhere at a trade show, maybe in Mexico. Uh, I think we were in Mexico City. And I heard you say, and I'm going to quote you as best as I can, Scott, 2018 is the year that I am going to make a living using my voice. Mm. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, very clearly. So we've all been through the transitions of life. We've mm. all made decisions and we've all you know, stood behind and had the support mechanism. And we've talked a little bit about your family and your beautiful wife and, and being able to support you through this. Mm. So here we are halfway through the year. Where are you in 2018 now, mm. this career path of making your living using your voice? And then secondly, the, the follow-up question to that is, is then what's the second half of this year look like mm. for? Nico Johnson, Suncast specifically, and and some of the other things that you're involved in. Because I know, I'm not going to name them, I'm going to let you talk about them, but Mm -hmm. I I know several other companies that you're affiliated with, several Mm -hmm. other uh, projects you're working on. So so first start telling us by where you are today at this great milestone. First of all, again, congratulations. Mm -hmm. But this milestone, and then where are we going from here? Thanks, Scott. It is a milestone for me. Suncast is one of my dreams. But as, fo- as long as I can remember, I've had a microphone in my hand. I mentioned it earlier in the episode that when I started trying to th- really figure out, uh, you know, after I left Faro Energy as a, where I was consulting for a year after Conergy, I really just said, you know, I'm sort of got this podcast thing that I've been doing. I don't really know how to convert that, but I know that I want to work for myself. And I have a vision for being able to have the podcast be something that's sponsored or that is generating income for me in some way that I can actually live from. So I went back and I asked my grandmother, I said, Grandma, what did you think I was going to be? And I asked my mother. And my grandmother said, I thought you were going to be a teacher. And my mother said, I thought you were going to be a singer. Well, both of those have a correlation. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Uh, uh-huh. You know, that's, uh, that's pretty profound because it's... Yeah. Uh, you're still heading in that direction. Yeah. They're, it's a broad, uh, a broad street, but you're on it. So as I sort of surveyed the work I was doing, I had begun to take on these consulting relationships where folks were saying, hey, look, we would really love for you to help us open the doors at key accounts, help us figure out how to move into 
emerging markets, help us look internally at our business operations and detect what's working and what's not and, uh, you know, shine a spotlight on what is and, and erase what's not. And I started to, over time, the last, call it two years, hone in on what were the skills that I could bring to the market that I had been honing as a craft for the last 10 years. And one of those that was just a natural, was a a no-brainer for me, was to leverage my ability as a connector, natural-born, I guess, comfort behind a microphone and and in in person with folks, getting to know them, and to incorporate more of that. So for those who are new listeners, Suncast started as the only podcast for Latin American solar. It was actually at one time going to be the LATAM Solar Report, which is a total ripoff of uh, Adam James' LATAM Solar Report at Green Tech Media. But few know that it was intended to be a ripoff because Adam was going to be a co-host. He ended up being episode number one, and I failed to be able to get him back on because shortly after that, he left GTM and went to Solar City. now Tesla, who are famous for not allowing their employees to kind of go out in public and talk about anything. So if I had my druthers, he might be episode 100 because it's always fun to just go back to guest one. But I started this podcast because there was a story that needed to be told in Latin America, and it wasn't being told. And it was a story that needed to be heard from the front lines, from people who were literally breaking new ground, who were breaking new projects open in Chile and Mexico. And I mean, this was way before the Mexico reform. I said, God, why? Like, this is the fastest growing solar market in the world. Why is nobody talking about this? And I remember very clearly the day I decided to start the podcast, I was standing in a conference room at Conergy and I was on the phone with Adam and we had been talking for 45 minutes and I just paused for a second. And I said, damn, I wish we'd recorded that. He's like, not me. That's not, stuff, <laughs> that's not stuff we can just put out there. I'm like, yeah, no, but what if we edited it? Like, that's what I want to do. Like, that's the idea for my podcast. And he was like, oh, the podcast again. Because anybody who would listen, I would tell them how I wanted to start a podcast. Yes, but I never did. had a good idea I was going to do kite surfing. And I mean, I could, I could name all the things I was going to start a podcast on. But I go, that's it. I'm going to start a podcast on solar. It's going to be in Latin America. And as I started working with my clients, what I started realizing was there's a broader story here among the solar among the solar companies, that ties back to how do you learn from the body of work that already exists in a way that honors what's happened before you and helps you avoid the mistakes of your elders and the mistakes of the people, your peers alongside you, right? And the solar industry is still in diapers. We're still so early in the global penetration that I saw Suncast also gathering steam, 2,000 and 3,000 downloads a month, as a platform where I could say, hey, what if I just broaden this horizon and said, for 2018, instead of just focusing on Latin America, I'm going to start focusing on clean tech leaders. I'm going to start focusing on founders. And I'm even going to try to start interviewing, like, get ready for it. Here, here it comes in a few episodes, like customers, people who've bought solar in mass, like the largest corporate buyer in Mexico, Grupo Bimbo, like the first major energy storage and solar project up in Massachusetts that Aura just did. Like these are things that are outcroppings now that the listeners are going to hear. FedEx, Prologis, all, right. the, all the places that have gone right. nationwide. Right. Yeah, and I, I said, agree. what can I use Suncast for as a platform to help others understand? Number one, what can you learn in the crucible? What can you learn from others like Dan Sugar, Jigger Shaw, Ed Fio, Danny Kennedy, the list goes on and on of, of industry founders. And then, you know, Scott Sullivan and Mike Walpert as marketing and sales gurus. Like, what can I help the industry learn in their spare time most often, right? In, in your commute while you're washing dishes, I like to say, at night, which is where a remarkable uh, portion of us listen to this show. And I said, the only way I can do that, the only way I can do that is if I break free from this time gap where I now have to spend a lot of my time focused on selling my skills to my clients, right? To Allian and others who contract me to help them figure out emerging markets, help them figure out their sales ops, help them get into key accounts. All the things that I've become skilled at. What if I thought about a way and I'm finding, I mean, you know this and I I haven't sort of talked about this with the general public, but how can I find a way to honor my grandmother and turn the focus towards education and actually start helping people through education learn the skills that I'm teaching my clients? So I've invited a few companies along. I'm really grateful for Soul Rates. I'm really grateful for Allianz. I'm really grateful for Chint Solar who have helped in very tangible ways bring that dream to reality. They have sponsored the show. They've given me guidance. They, I mean, I get advice from Ed Hecox. I get advice from Dustin Keel. 
tangible advice, like who, sh- who they think would be good guests on the show, not because they're, you know, their clients, in many cases they're not, but because they think they're inspirational leaders in the industry, right? Exactly. So I treat it as, I treat my sponsors almost as a board of directors for me, right? They get hands-on interaction with how I'm crafting the show and I invite them into a partnership. So when I say it's a partnership, it really is not somebody just paying for airtime. You know, they're helping support my mission, which is to help train the next generation of leaders in clean tech. I'm just in the first act of that right now. You know, recently we launched the Suncast Energy Tribe, which is, a, you know, either an annual membership through the website or, or a monthly membership through Patreon, where folks who identify with and agree with the message that Suncast is bringing to the world and who get benefit from it already are willing to say, hey, I'll throw a dollar in your tip jar or I'll come alongside as a $10 a month uh, pseudo sponsor, really, of That's the show. That's exactly right. You know, and um, it's no uh, different really from the NPR style of like, you know, the folks who become monthly sustainers. And I'm super grateful. It's not a huge number right now. My target was like 230 when we launched. I've got less than 30, right? It's not a huge number right now, but I am so grateful for folks. And I've called them out as um, Patreon or, or as tribe members. But I really believe this idea of the tribe, that there are different aspects of how we can help one another. Some people are hunters. Some people are fire builders. Uh, some people are, are, are medicine men, right? But together as a tribe, just like you and I do, just like we did when we had that um, meetup at, for LATAM where, you know, a lot of folks came that weren't even involved in LATAM. They came because they're friends of ours and they came because they're genuinely interested in under, seeing where the LATAM market's going as one parallel to what's happening in the U.S. Our tribe has a meaningful impact on one another. You are aware of it. You know, those who are in the LATAM market and who are my friends, many are aware that I have a WhatsApp group. WhatsApp has become a, a walkie-talkie, if you will, among a great number of friends, about 60 of us now, who are the real action takers, the leaders in the industry. That is kind of where the idea of the tribe was birthed. It was literally a WhatsApp group that I started in, uh, at SPI 2016 to try and just get the LATAM guys together because we were all in Vegas. And now, every single day, tribe members are helping one another. And that's what I long to see. I long to foster the type of collaboration in this industry that I was talking about with Pedro, right? The type of collaboration where people who are seeking advice can get it. People who are willing to give advice can have a natural channel through which they can provide that mentorship and that leadership. These are some of the precepts around which I created the Suncast Energy Tribe. And in my spare time, and, that, and by that I mean literally sometime between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m., <laughs> uh, I managed to pull together this, uh, you know, the member page on the website to sort of explain it a little better. And there are benefits to, to joining. There are sort of tangible and intangible benefits. But to your question, I set out a goal that 2018 was going to be the year that I liberated myself from the need to ever work for another customer as an employee again, because I want to be time and location independent. I want to be able to do my work. If that means midnight, it's midnight and be rewarded for it at a different time than midnight. And I want to be able to do it in Merida or in Bogota or in Madrid, wherever, right? I want to be able to do it anywhere, location independent. um, Or Northern California. Or Northern California, where we are right now, or in North Carolina, because I want to bring value that is totally disconnected from time and location. And thanks to my sustainers, my Suncast tribe members, and thanks to Chint and Solrates and Allion and those that are to come, I have achieved a portion of the income that my family needs this year and made it a reality. I'm now being paid to use my voice, which is wonderful. It's a wonderful gift, uh, and it's not one I take lightly. So where do we go from here? So Suncast is evolving, you know, we're at episode 100 and I've begun to see opportunities where I can help. In particular, there's a transitioning happening for residential solar installers going into sort of moving into commercial space and and trying to feel out what that looks like. Uh, I'm doing consulting for companies that are doing that, but I also want to bring some education to that space. In particular, in Latin America, there's almost no training for that. So I'm working with folks down there to help bring some education to that space. So we're working in both English and Spanish. It's the complex world of trying to bridge the gap between the United States and Latin America. Operationally Um, and sales and marketing or installation? Yeah, so I, I mostly focus on uh, sales and marketing, but within the tribe, we have all skills, right? So I often connect companies with tribe members. I often connect folks with those that I know can help bring them value. If somebody came to me and said, hey, I really need help with 
getting the, my day-to-day tasks done while I'm still leading this company. I would say, you really need a virtual assistant. And they might say, I don't know how to do that. And I might say, well, you should really just reach out. You should reach out to Scott. Like, here are the five things that I've learned from hiring virtual assistants. But, you know, Susan Sullivan has a virtual assistant company. Like, start there. They're, they're great help. Yeah, so within the tribe, I tend to focus mostly on sales and marketing. And as you said, like people come to us all the time with leads, with opportunities, and we make referrals. It's not exclusively within the tribe. It's not exclusively to people who are paying to be a part of my no, tribe. And, it's, um, and I'm going to tell the listeners right now, and I know most of us that know you know this is true, and the same is true with me. We have no expectation of reciprocation right. or, yeah. or being paid or having any financial incentive. We have no expectation of that when we do a yeah. referral or bring someone into the tribe. That's not what this is about. Yeah. This is about sustaining our industry and growing yeah. our industry. I love what you said. A couple of things unpacking on this is we're still in diapers. This industry is still so young that we could take the entire industry and put it in a, in a group and it still wouldn't make any difference. We're all still here. So, you know, there's this thing that we do every time that you do a suncast. You talk about, you know, hotter hype. <laughs> and I'm going to turn this microphone around on you and I have to ask. So you talk about distributed generation and storage in the utility space. So yeah. give me 30 to 60 seconds and tell me, hotter hype. Yeah, I think that I, I've said on the show, I think, and I definitely talked a lot about it at InterSolar. If you are a solar company right now who is already thinking about, at the very least, if not taking action on integrating storage into your business, you are in a dying business. You are, uh, as they say, I mean, I would, be, I would be so bold as to say dead man walking, like you are on death row if you haven't figured out that storage is the future of our industry. So hot. Hype. No, I'm kidding. Hot. <laughs> totally hot. Okay. Totally so, hot. I so. think that DG Energy Storage in particular is going to have the kind of inflection point that we saw DG Solar have around the uh, the Sun Edison, Green Skies, uh, Solar City becoming, becoming commercial ilk of call it 2010 to 2012. I think we are, I think 2019 will be the year that we saw like DG commercial solar take root like 2011, eight years behind it. All right, so let's move over to microgrids and community solar, hot or hype? Yeah, so they're actually two separate, uh, I'll take them as two separate categories. Microgrids, I'm a big fan of. I think that they have a place in our economy. I think that for established economies, uh, established grid infrastructure, we're gonna see much less traditional microgrid infrastructure. I'd like to say that microgrids for the utility space or for integration into the current utility in the U.S. is, is hype. Uh, I don't see it um, being a, a core piece of business for most businesses. And, and so if you look at a macro level, uh, I don't think that someone in the U.S. could focus on microgrids alone and have a business out of it. Outside of the U.S. and emerging markets, there are innumerable companies right now who are making lots of impact just focused on micro and nano and pico grids. So people with no infrastructure, yeah. hot. People yes. with infrastructure, hype. Hype, that's okay. right. Okay, so community solars. So with community solar, I agree with my recent guest, the CEO of Nikola Power, who said that community solar is the fourth wave. It's the fourth vertical, residential, commercial, utility, community. Uh, I think that community solar is going to unlock the utility growth model for corporates for retail solar, right? Because essentially what I've found really through, through interviewing some really smart guests is that community solar forms the nucleus, uh, or rather, sorry, retail customers form the nucleus around which community solar programs can have the necessary volume to yeah, get to scale. In, yeah, they can yeah. work in their, own, in their own microcosm. Yeah, that's right. I agree. That's right. So I think community solar is going to be big. I think that we've, we've seen it blow up in Minnesota, Colorado, a few places in the Northeast, but we're going to see community solar take root in mass in the U.S. So I would say, like, keep your eye on, I think that the big, big, big market is DG with uh, probably DC coupled storage. We won't go into that right now, but like DG plus solar, solar plus storage, and then community solar. I kind of almost lump into DG solar in a bit, even though it does get into some of the bigger, like five to 10 to 20 megawatt stuff. So hot. It's very hot. So what about electric vehicle and the integration of that into the grid? Yeah, honestly, I would have said hype until this last week. The power to drive segment of InterSolar really focused on what's happening in the EV integration infrastructure. I think it's hot. I think I'm probably going to say hot on all of these, but I think that segment is hot. 
I think that one of the cool things is that where it's really hot are with installers who are figuring out that EV charging is a fantastic way to get new solar customers. If you haven't heard it here said before, EV charging is a fantastic way to get new solar customers. <laughs> and, and I think that transactive energy is closer than it's probably going to be the next thing I'm guessing, but transactive energy is closer than we think it is. Uh, I think that we're very close to seeing a grid, I'll call it by 2020, where maybe not in mass, but where transactions will be taking place from your car onto the grid. And it's probably a select few. It's probably a, a pilot program, but I think it's really, I think it's really hot. And I think that there are niches in the United States like Green Mountain Power and probably like Pacific Gas and Electric and Excel who are going to take a, take a shot and they're going to put some money down and they're going to really put their money where their mouth is and, and turn e-mobility into uh, grid stabilization. So hype until last weekend, now hot. Yeah. Wow, that is part of the solar coaster that we all live on. Uh, so let's talk about blockchain, mm. specifically to the energy transaction, but also just blockchain in general, sort of where you are right now. Yeah, I was super skeptical about blockchain until my recent interview with Nick Gogarty. So it's bifurcated. I think it's hot and I think it's hype. Um, <laughs> I think you can't have both. Nico. I know. OK, so it's hype. If you are talking about blockchain, I think within any in any sort of a near-term framework, it's total hype that transactive energy in the form of blockchain registry is going to even be possible, let alone necessary, because for the most part, the way that blockchain works takes time to register a transaction. That's part of the beauty of, uh, of, of the way the blockchain for Bitcoin, for example, works in terms of the proof of the transaction that's happening. In transactive energy, the, the transaction tends to happen more quickly. There are certainly day ahead and, and other types of markets, but like, frankly, it's just not so many transactions that you need a robust registry. Yeah, it's not a credit card. Right. What I do see, uh, and, and Etienne pointed this out, Etienne LeCompte from PowerHub on his episode, where as a technology, blockchain is fantastic for serving as a historical registry, like for warranties. When you've got, literally, we're going to be in the billions of panels deployed globally. When you've got billions of solar panels deployed and you can actually register every single panel and pretty soon every single cell on the blockchain by who owns it, when it was transacted, where it's located, now you're able to start tracking not just the location and the proof of uh, installation, but the energy that comes off of it, right? And we talked a bit about this on Nick Gogarty's uh, episode. I think that is actually totally hot. And there are, there's a company down in South Africa that's doing it now. They'll sell you one cell in a solar panel. And it's all based on uh, the, the, the idea of having it on a blockchain registry. And you can, you can track every kilowatt hour coming off of it. And that has monetary value, as we know from, from climate exchanges, right? So it's not even a matter of time. Like it's very present day that we need better technology to, tr to, to transform the transaction, the nature of transactions and registering those transactions to monetize the kilowatt hour other than uh, just the, the, the red and the black and white uh, kilowatt hour for a monetary transaction on the grid. There are the intangible benefits as well. I sort of became a a pseudo sort of a fanboy of SolarCoin after my interview with Nick Gogarty. And I know that it, folks are going to come out of the woodwork to try and um, <laughs> present and convince me of others. Um, and that's great because that's what we're all trying to learn about. Okay, hype <laughs> is not. Blockchain is hype for like, I think for instantaneous transactive energy. I think it is very hot for the industry at large, but I think it's almost too early to tell, right? There are so many, there's so many really cool companies right now that are trying to work out how to integrate blockchain and what cryptocurrency looks like and how cryptocurrency can, ha can be a store of value for what we're creating, which is a new economy. That's exactly right. So last one, I'm going to mix it up now. All right. I'd normally, we would normally go into bifacial panels, but uh -huh. I'm skipping that because okay. something that happened to me at Intersolar last week, right. now I'm going to throw it out there. PV recycling, <laughs> hot or high? Oh man, I think it's hot actually. So what's really cool is that there's a whole generation of folks that basically created the PV industry as we know it, who were a bunch of hippies trying to play Grateful Dead on their radios off grid in their you know log cabins. And I, I love them. And they really did uh, launch our industry. Without um, a doubt, they did. Without a doubt, uh, foundationally. And lo and behold, like they put hundreds of thousands, if not millions of panels into operation 
Some uh, of them 40 watts. Yeah, yeah. Some of them seven. Some of them seven <laughs> yeah. watts. I've seen 40, 50, 60 watt yeah. panels, and now we have yeah, so 450 Sam, watt panels. Sam Bannerhoof's first panel was seven watts, and that's, that's a crazy. funny story. I'll get him to tell it on the show. So these guys are now some semi-retired, if not fully retired, and they're realizing, oh my God, we've put all this stuff out in the world, and it's starting to actually be pulled off of projects, and there's nowhere for it to go. And this is not just in the U.S. Like, let's not be ethnocentric. I'm talking about leaders Billions. in Europe, leaders in Australia, leaders in Asia, who are saying, wait a minute, we've got all this you know, technology that's comprised of uh, silicon and aluminum and glass and copper wire and silver paste. And there's no landfill for all of this. I think actually PV recycling is hot. It's something that I've been thinking about since 2008. You know, it's a bummer Scott's not here because I remember sitting at the ACES conference in in, uh, Miami in San Diego in 2008. And Scott and I were talking about this very topic. And, you know, he he went on to work for a company called PV Exchange, which is now out of business. But this has been a a topic of conversation within our industry of like, what are we going to do with the second life of solar modules? First of all, there's a second life when they come off of projects after 20 years that you can resell them and, and get, and Absolutely. they still have harvestable energy. Absolutely. It's, it's yeah. you know, the, the, first pro, the first solar cell. Back ever. to microgrids. We're back to the third world countries where we have microgrids. Totally. The, fir- yeah. the first solar cell that was ever created in Bell Labs is still producing at over 50% efficiency. Or excuse right. me, uh, 50% of uh, uh, nameplate. Nameplate, right. Yeah. So that's a lot of power when you think about it 50 years later. Anyway, so PV recycling, hot. I think that it, one of the things I learned from Sam this last week, just talking to him about that topic a bit, is that it has nothing to do with PV and everything to do with recycling. And that's a totally different industry. And repurposing. Yeah, and repurposing. And that's a really hard industry. Um, Which is part of what we should be standing for as solar, yeah. uh, you know, for saving the planet one yeah. panel at a time. Yeah. So Nico, one of the things besides hot or hype that we talk about all the time, and that is that readers, uh, leaders are readers and readers uh, are leaders. So I have just had had some of the greatest book recommendations mm. over the years from your guests. So let's talk a little bit about that. What's on your nightstand or on your uh, on your audibles right now? And let's talk a little bit about what's your top 10 list? Where have you been and where are you going so that we can get your recommendations? You talk to a lot more people <laughs> than I do during the course of a day. What's on my nightstand right now that I listen to on the airplane, I mean, I listen to Audible uh, and audiobooks, but the book I'm listening to right now that I think is amazing is called The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungestanier, and he's a Canadian. It is something that is an indication of where, where my head's at. I'm spending a lot of time coaching folks today, and he just breaks down the seven to ten, it's seven core questions, but seven to ten questions and ways that you can think about helping your team and helping those around you by getting out of the way and becoming more efficient by allowing them to get their work done and, and, and enabling them. And I'm recommending this book left and right to anybody I know who's a manager. The Coaching Habit is a phenomenal book. So the other one that I've been recommending I just think this is a fantastic book. I'm considering doing more around this book in particular. It's a book called The 12-Week Year, Get More Done in 12 Weeks Than Others Do in 12 Months by a guy named Brian P. Moran and Michael, I think, Lynn Lennington or something like that is his co-author. That book challenged me, and I'm actually starting to implement it in my, in my world. It's literally taking your looking at your months as weeks. And so uh, if a t- traditional year has 12 months, uh, a traditional quarter has 12 weeks, and if you break it down and say, I'm going to do in the next week what I would be expected to do in a month, it has a framework for how to accomplish that, which just seems mind-boggling, but it's actually uh, achievable, and there are countless examples of people that have done it. The book I've recommended the most this year is a book that I'm privileged to have just recently interviewed the author, Chris Voss, for his book, Never Split the Difference, How to Negotiate as Though Your Life Depended on It. <laughs> that book, I could reread. Every time I reread it, I get more and more uh, from it. And I'm really thrilled. Actually, it's, I'll just say now, it's the next episode, episode 101. And the reason for that is because it's a 101 on negotiation. It's like a, it's like a negotiation 101. This, this book is critical. The last one I'll leave, and then I think with this, what I'll do is, um, I think I'll create, uh, prompted sort of by my rambling here, I need to create a top 10 list. What are the 10 things that were maybe most recommended over the 100 episodes? There are a few that were recommended a lot. Uh, the one that has never been recommended that is my top recommendation, it's the book that I gift the most, which is how I've always also framed this question, is a book called 
Mindset. Mindset by Carol Dweck. She's a Stanford professor. That book did more to change my life than any book before it. Not, not going to say any book after it, but any book before it. There are a lot of books I would recommend, but if anyone had to start with only one book, I think that mindset is critical. All right, so I'm going to wrap this up. It has been, first of all, I'm going to tell you it has been nothing but an honor. I, I, I want to commend you for your leadership. You. I, want to, I want to talk to you and, and be your friend forever and ever and ever. And as a, there was a, an old Irish proverb that I'd like to tell right now that's the, the old man walks up and he leans down to the young boy and he whispers in his ear and then as he walks away, father said, what did he say to you? What did he say to you? And he says, he said, I hope you live to be 200 and the last voice you hear is mine. <laughs> so you are a leader. You're a true leader in the industry. I hope you, you live forever. I hope we go on and Thank on you, and on. So I want to recap. Nico Johnson, a gentleman and a scholar, a guy that I consider to be a friend and a colleague, absolute stellar leader in the renewable energy space, and now just an absolute shining star when it comes to broadcast and teaching, understanding, communicating, all of those things, connecting, all those great things that he's doing right now. But he's the man that I know as a family man, a man of faith, a man of strength, a man that has fulfilled his goals of, of being very fluent in, a, in at least one other language, mm -hmm. who cares about people, who cares about the second and third worlds of this, of this planet that we live on, the places in Latin America that you and I, as listeners right now, don't venture, this man boldly goes mm. and spends time there. So, Nico, I want to tell you, I wish you nothing but stellar success. I'm a member of your tribe. You can mark me down for an annual membership. I am so excited to be part of your tribe and I'm honored to be considered just someone that would even be a guest or a friend. Mm. So well, nothing but, it, but continued success, my friend. Well, Scott, I, uh, I reciprocate that it was a no brainer for me when you and I started kicking around the idea of who would, you know, what if somebody turned the mic on me? It was a no brainer that it would be you. I just respect you so much, not the least of which because you do come from a broadcast background. I love what you're doing and what you're bringing to the world as well. Thank you for gracing the Suncast stage, not once, but three times. I'm grateful for you, brother. I'm grateful that you are a solar warrior. I'm grateful that so many of the solar warriors out there call you friend and that I can as well. Thank you for turning the mic on me. Thank you for making this a great opportunity for folks to get a chance to really hear a bit more of my story. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation and on a hundred episodes of Suncast Solar Warriors. Thank you. Wow, that was so much fun. I really enjoyed getting together with Scott. Thank you again, brother. We got a chance to record outside in lovely Northern California. And it just was a treat. It was really a pleasure. So thank you, Scott, again for hosting and turning the mic on me. Hey, did you know... That if you started Suncast in L.A., you could drive all the way to New York and you'd still be listening to Suncast. <laughs> there is so much content here to dive into. Did you know that if you drove a Model S, and I'm not even going to contemplate what it might be for a Leaf or the BMW i3, but if you drove a Tesla Model S, you'd stop and supercharge 15 times while you listened to all 100 Suncast episodes driving across the country. And the amount of total downloads of Suncast is three times larger than the attendance of Solar Power International 2017. It has been an incredible journey thus far, Solar Warriors, and we are far, far from done. 100 is but a milestone, and I promise that I will be here for many more. We're going to be exploring some new formats, expanding to other regions and topics. And yes, the rumors are true. We're even going to change up the music and shorten that dreadfully long intro that you've gotten used to probably skipping through. So please continue to provide the feedback that is so necessary and nurturing to this process. You can find me on Twitter, as some 6,500 of you already have. And uh, that handle is at Nico M-E-O, Nico Mayo. Or on LinkedIn, many, many of you are connected there. And I would encourage you also to join the mailing list 
at mysuncast.com, also where you can find all of the back catalog of episodes. And if you join the mailing list, you'll hear from me not more than a couple of times a week at most. Usually it's once a week, if that. And you won't miss out on all the stuff that's happening outside of your earbuds. I'd like to take a quick moment here to thank all of the guests from Adam James back in episode one to Paul Grana in episode 99 and so many friends, mentors, and leaders in between. I am truly honored and humbled. I'd also like to take a moment to thank the corporate partners who've helped to make it possible for me to continue on this journey. Thanks to Luis Morales and the fine folks over at Enphase, Dustin Keel at Soul Rates, Mark Kingsley at Lion Energy, and most recently, Ed Hecox, Carlos Abad, and the Chint Power team. I really do appreciate your help, your faith, your trust in this platform, and your contribution. Thank you. As a listener, you can learn more about these partners, or maybe you would even want to join them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsors. And lastly, I'd like to say thank you once more for you listening to Suncast. Without you downloading or streaming this show every week, Suncast doesn't exist. And the fact that you're still listening tells me that you really do appreciate the work that I'm bringing to life here. And if that's true, and you'd like to consider supporting Suncast as well, personally, then you can head over to mysuncast.com and check out the Suncast Energy Tribe by clicking the member button. And I look forward to welcoming you formally into the tribe, my friend. Well, who knows what the next hundred episodes will bring, but one thing's for sure. I'll be here every week bringing you the tips, tools, and insights that you need to stay ahead of the pack. So keep showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>